Welcome to Telling the Tooth, the official mental dental podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gross, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Laura Jaycox. Hello. And we have a great episode today. Today, we'll be hearing from Dr. Sabrina Saunders, who's going to be talking about her recently released book that's available on Amazon through the Kindle app, uh, where she did extensive research um, while also having a business background from the Keenan Flagler Business School at UNC um, on exactly how to manage one's debt and income and retirement savings as a millennial specifically those from a healthcare background like Dennis. Uh, many of us are entering the workforce with substantial debt uh, that far rivals our prior generations of graduates. And so we need to have more specialized strategies for how we plan things out in order to have a comfortable lifestyle, plan for home purchase, plan for practice purchase, and ultimately manage our money well so we can invest, save, and pay down these debts while having a good life that we've all worked hard to attain. Yeah, and a lot of our listeners are dental students and dental professionals. And so with that in mind, we planned out several financial episodes to help you tackle those intimidating student loans and just overall how to succeed with money. And this will be the first of those financial episodes. So with that said, I hope you all enjoy the interview. We are joined by a wonderful guest today, Dr. Sabrina Saunders. She was born and raised in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. She completed her undergraduate degree in business administration at the University of North Carolina Keenan Flagler Business School. She loved Chapel Hill and Carolina basketball so much that she pursued her dental education at the UNC Adams School of Dentistry. She currently practices as a general dentist in Somerville, South Carolina, and she recently published the book, The Millennial Money Mindset, Achieve Financial Freedom. Sabrina, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So first off, uh, I read your book, I loved it, and we can certainly talk about some of the specific tips and tricks you have in there later. But first, how did you get interested in this topic? Yeah, so, I majored in business in undergrad, like you had just said, um, because I thought I wanted to own my own practice someday. I've always been pretty interested in this topic, and I took a lot of courses, mostly in business school, in the service industry, because dentistry is in the service industry. Mm -hmm. However, I took some useful electives, and one that I took was personal finance. Until then, I knew basically nothing about personal finance. I didn't know what a budget was. I didn't know about retirement savings or even really my own spending habits. In the book, I discuss this uh, budget exercise where you write down everything that you spend in a month. And that's everything from like the coffee you buy to the groceries or anything you spend on your dog at all. Add it all up at the end number of, the of Amazon packages that I order. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You have to say the number of Amazon packages you ordered, even if it's not something that you want to admit. But um, so we did that in that course, not really opened my eyes into what I was spending money on and how I was spending my money how much things really cost at the end of the month. And it was kind of an eye opener. 
and of course I didn't have a job at the time because I was still in school and then I went to dental school. So I just started working this year and finally making money. So I knew I needed to do better with my personal finances and I needed to learn more about how to save for retirement, how to create an emergency fund and all those little things that nobody really wants to talk about but should be doing. So that's kind of what got me interested in the topic. So what uh, convinced you to go from it being an area of interest or investigation to motivating you to write a book about it? Yeah, so I was doing a lot of research this past year, like I just said, and I was planning on how to pay off my debt, create that emergency fund, save for retirement, but I also still wanted to live a lifestyle that was enjoyable um, for somebody of my age. So I started making spreadsheets and utilized online tools. I was always so proud of what I did, so I would show my boyfriend everything that I figured out. and he was really excited about all of it and he's not working at this time because he's in residency as well so it was kind of something that i did on my own and then covid hit and we had this pandemic and i ended up getting furloughed from my job so i had a mini panic attack of course because i knew i wouldn't have any substantial income um, to pay off of my loans but then i realized that i had that six-month emergency fund that i created and funded through the first few months of working and I was never so thankful that I made such a thing. I also wasn't even able to collect unemployment in the beginning because I hadn't been working long enough in South Carolina so it would have been pretty scary without one and then I got to thinking how I can't imagine the people who get furloughed or fired or laid off because of this virus that had no savings. I, and I don't have kids or anything, but the people that did have kids and families and other bills to pay, that's what worried me. And so that kind of prompted me to write this book because I wanted to share what I discovered and help people who don't really know anything about finances and don't know that they should be saving this kind of money that's for such a long period of time. Yeah, that's great. I think, um, you know, personal finance is, is personal. And like you're saying, having an emergency fund and managing your money well, just the return on investment is just the peace of mind of being able to know where your money's going and managing it the best way you can. So I think that's really great. It's such a crucial life skill as well that I feel like a lot of us have missed out on in our education. So I think it's really great that you got that as part of your undergrad and have carried it forward throughout your training and kind of made it a focus of yours. Um, and I think, you know, we'll all benefit from a resource like this book being out there. Um, because, I mean, we all went into dentistry to help people, but we also went into dentistry to have a comfortable life as well. And so having our life set up so that we can provide for ourselves without having financial stress and be able to survive economic periods like COVID, both for ourselves, for our staff that rely on us, um, is really important for our happiness and our success long term. I definitely agree. And I honestly have to give all of the credit to my high school job. I worked at a doctor's office filing charts during the summer in high school and I let them know that I was going to pursue a career in dentistry because I always knew that I wanted to be a dentist. And um, 
they were like, well, you should really study business because when I got out of med school, I didn't know how to run this business. And that's something that you should definitely know how to do. But business school wasn't only about me learning how to start my own practice or run my own practice, which currently I'm not doing at all. And I might not in life, but it taught me more skills that were for everyday life that I really have been utilizing this past year that will give me a comfortable lifestyle to live and something that I can enjoy, especially during retirement and not having to work until I'm 80. Yeah. I mean, hopefully we can all retire before then at the right time. I mean, in this general topic um, and kind of umbrella of personal finance within health sciences, the other book that comes to mind is the white white coat investor, which I found very helpful. How do you see yours um, kind of relative to that? I know that was written by kind of a medical doctor and his experience and yours is more dental focused, but just, it, was that an inspiration at all? Yeah, I actually read that book. Um, it was last year in my last year of dental school. One of our classmates, recommended it and he sent it to me and I read it all in one sitting and I was really inspired oh, by wow. it and I like took notes and everything and I felt like such a nerd because I just spent the whole night just reading that and it it definitely inspired me to get interested again in the topic now that it graduation was coming closer and I was realizing that I was going to have a job and everything. But I do see this book as being something similar, somewhat different. It's not necessarily only for um, dental professionals or even medical or healthcare professionals. I kind of geared it towards young professionals in general, people who end up coming out of college or professional school with a lot of loans and people who don't really know how to combat that. And do they pay off their loans? Do they save money? How do they stop spending so much money? I mean, I know there were some days in dental school where we'd have a test and I would feel drained afterwards. So I'd walk over to the hospital and get Starbucks. But of course, I'm one of those people that wants the almond milk and the this and that. And it ended up being like $6 for a small coffee. And then I realized that all of that was adding up so much that that's not really something that I can do very often and feel good about my finances. I mean, if that's what I wanted to treat myself every once in a while, that was okay, but I couldn't make that a regular thing. So I don't think it's necessarily only for healthcare providers to read this book. I think people who are really millennials in general, it sh they should read this book because it has a lot of tips for people our age that are going through certain points in their life that they can really utilize. One of the topics that's come out of um, some of the research we've been doing in our lab is just how much debt burdens are changing kind of the life trajectories and the life choices of millennials. And so I think it's, you know, it's really important that you targeted to that audience where, you know, it's influencing when people are buying houses, when people are having kids, how many kids they're going to have. Because if you're coming into the world, and these papers are specifically on dentists, but it applies to other healthcare professionals and millennials in general, because education costs so much for us. Um, just learning how to grapple with that debt and plan for that debt, I think is particularly um, relevant for our age group. Absolutely. That was something that I found crazy in my research that 
was for millennials in general. And again, I know the research that you read, you said it was mainly specific for dentists. And I understand because we're in professional school so late in life. So we do wait to have kids oftentimes and wait to buy houses because we just have so much debt. But it's not only us, it's millennials in general. People rent more. They don't buy houses. They don't start families until they're later on in life. And I find that that's true for most people in our generation, not just us dentists. This is why we're so excited to have you on because I know a lot of our audience falls in that age range. And so I think there are just, there are going to be a lot of people that um, I think this, this book and particularly these topics we're talking about are just, hopefully will really hit home and can change the way people live day to day. Uh, I think a lot of this is behavior management. A lot of it, some of it is head knowledge, but I think the, the majority of it is really recognizing your behaviors and being willing to change things where you can to, in order to save money in, in the long run. With that in mind, how do you feel like you want readers to use your book? I want readers, especially those who really know nothing about personal finance, to use this book as a starting point for their financial well-being. I really want to encourage readers to actively participate in the budgeting exercise because that's after my main introduction chapter, I go into the budgeting exercise. And like you said, Ryan, how it's more of a behavior, it is a behavior and you have to first acknowledge what your spending habits are through the budgeting exercise to be, to be able to like show yourself that you're really not doing a great job or maybe you are doing a good job and you can continue on that trajectory, but it's really important to see how you're doing before you can make any changes. It's similar to how, you know, in dentistry, if you tell a patient that their tooth has a crack in it, if they're not in pain, they don't believe you until you take an intraoral photo of it. And then they're like, oh, wow, that looks awful. And you put it up on the big screen and you show them. And then they're like, well, what can we do about that? So until people do the exercise and see what they're spending money on, they may not realize that they're doing a really bad job with it. Yeah, I love that and, analogy. And I know making a budget sounds anything but exciting, but I truly believe it is the backbone to financial success. I don't make it out to be a bad thing. I let the reader decide what's most important to them and make sure that they keep room in their budget for that. Like for me, I have learned, and I'm not very old, but I guess later in my life that experiences are worth more, are, are worth spending more money on than material items. And I mean, I like to go shopping as much as the next person, but really what I've been trying to spend extra money on is traveling or going to a concert, something that I'm going to be making memories from because again, a lot of the research that I found with this book is that the memories that you make from experiences give you more long-term happiness even though the moment itself is fleeting, you think about it over and over again, or the excitement leading up to it. So you get more long-term happiness than you do from a new pair of shoes. Yeah, that's a great point. And like you said, with budgeting, I know budgeting gets such a bad rap, but 
I know that like with a few hours of just sitting down and working through your bills and figuring out where your money's going, it's just like, I think it's just so empowering, you know, and Dave Ramsey says it's telling your money where it's going instead of wondering where it went. And for me, that's always stuck with me. Like, gosh, I have that kind of power to really tell my money where it's going to go and have, have some control over that, that aspect of my life. I definitely agree with that. And in the beginning of my book, I have a, another Dave Ramsey quote there. Let me, let me find it and read it. You must gain control over your money or the lack of it will forever control you. So that also goes along with budgeting and knowing where your money is going and telling it where to go. You have to have control over it. How would you say that writing the book influenced your own personal finances and financial decisions? I think I had already somewhat figured out my own personal finances before writing the book. So I don't know if the book itself will influence my decisions, but definitely doing the research beforehand has influenced me. It's all pretty simple though. And in my book, I have them separated by chapters, but the main points are to reduce and prioritize your spending, increase your savings, pay down debt, and put money away for a retirement fund and emergency fund. Those parts are pretty black and white. The part that's a little more opinion related is how to invest your money. And I do talk about that a little bit in the book. And this is definitely an opinion. So it's not necessarily telling people how to invest their money. But time after time, it's been proven that investing in index funds Mm -hmm. often outperforms financial advisor funds. So that's definitely something that I like to invest my money in. And I usually like to break it into three different types. So a bond index fund, a U.S. stock index fund, and then an international index fund. And then the younger you are, the more you can keep it in those stock index funds because they're a little bit riskier. But then the closer you get to retirement, the more you'll want in bonds because you don't want to ride out a big dip in the market if you're about to retire. That I think is very prudent advice. I mean, that's the advice that I'm, we have a financial planner who we pay effectively hourly to give us advice rather than having them actively manage funds and take 1% of, of that. Um, And I know kind of when considering our own personal finances, there was this debate about, do you put it in an index fund um, and ride kind of the market wave, or do you lose 1% to someone who's actively moving money around or putting it in actively managed accounts? And it seemed like the vast majority of investment advice was that was to do what you're recommending to do, which is put it in an index fund. Um, for for listeners who aren't as familiar with that term, could you just explain what an index fund is? Yeah, so an index fund is similar to a, a mutual fund where it's a basket of investments that follow a particular stock index, such as the S&P 500. So that's like the top 500 businesses, companies in America and the index fund follows that index. So if that's down, then your index fund is down, but there's such large baskets of different types of investments that they're already very diversified themselves. So if you do all US stock index, you're getting everything in there. 
So the volatility of it, while yes, during COVID, it definitely took a hit, but it will come back up. So mm-hmm. if you're young, which my book is for young professionals, and you have the years or decades to ride out those dips in the market, you probably will end up outperforming an actively managed fund. I mean, that was something that I had to learn kind of on my own, plus a few books. And so I think having all of that in one place will be a great resource. I know I've personally gone back and forth about having someone actively manage my funds or to do it myself. Are there any companies out there, like investment companies that you would recommend people check out for being able to invest in these index funds and not have somebody to actively run them? So I'm definitely not a financial advisor and I have no ties to any company at all, but I personally use Fidelity. It's some one that you can do online and they have a huge array of different index funds. Vanguard is another great one. I know Ryan, Dr. King, one of our faculty members in dental school was big into Vanguard. And I mm-hmm. believe the founder of Vanguard was the one who started index funds. And I could be wrong about that, but I think that's who it is. Um, John Bogle. And the great thing about index funds is that they have such low expense fees. So if you're having an actively managed fund, say it's 1%, which some of them are over 1%, you are losing 1% of your money every year that you have them manage your fund. So if you think about that, you have to outperform the market by an additional 1% to make as much as you would on index funds, which is pretty difficult. And index funds usually have uh, an expense ratio of anywhere from point, I mean, some of mine are 0.02%. I mean, that's really low. They can go up from that, but a lot of the big ones like the total market international or total US market, they're usually under 0.1%. Well, that's really helpful. I think I will uh, check some of those resources out. So we mentioned um, White Coat Investor before. We mentioned Dave Ramsey. Are there any other uh, resources that you used for either inspiration or getting some research information for this book? I definitely use the White Coat Investor before I had ever even thought about writing my own book, but mostly this past year, I utilized a lot of different online resources, not necessarily one in particular. I did also have a lot of knowledge from my college courses and some from dental school with our practice management course. My boyfriend is in residency to become an orthodontist and they have a private practice orthodontist who is adjunct there and he comes in and teaches their practice management courses to them but he gives cj some extra information to give to me so i've actually really been using some of his resources as well and he gets the mcgill hill group newsletter and i think you can get it via email but they have some really great online financial resources, especially those geared more towards dentists. And they're really great. So if there are any dentists listening out there, I would recommend signing up for their newsletter. Like we were talking about before, not all dental school curricula tackle this issue much, if at all. So I think it's really great to have something specific for dental students or just for you know the millennial population in general. And I wish that's something that 
we were taught a little bit more in dental school. I know UNC is starting that new practice management curriculum with Dr. Jack King, who is amazing, but I kind of mm -hmm. wish that we had that. So we got the short end of the stick there, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, one, yeah, a couple of years too late, but uh, I know Dr. King will do a really great job for them. <laughs> for sure. What do you feel like is the biggest misconception financially for dentists? I find this question really difficult to answer because I'm not necessarily sure for all dentists what is the biggest misconception, but most dentists, a lot of dentists at least, go straight into dental school from their undergraduate degree. They never earned a true salary. Some may have worked summer jobs, but nothing that you would make as a dentist. And when they get their first paycheck, as a dentist, they might be tempted to spend it as if they're not in debt, but you can't live like a dentist just yet. I don't want you going to buy a brand new car that costs $100,000 because you just can't afford it yet because you're in debt. But at the same time, I also don't want new dentists, especially dentists nowadays that do come out with such high levels of debt to be afraid of investing into a practice of their own. And I did not invest into a practice of my own because we were not sure if we're staying in this location long-term or what we're doing. And I ended up getting an amazing associateship. So I'm super thankful for that. But there are a lot of new dentists that go into practice and they feel obligated to work at a job or for a company that might force them to be unethical or something that they they really just don't agree with. And so that's something that I want new dentists to think about. And the biggest misconception is that it's twofold. You either have so much money that you can go out and buy whatever you want, or you are just in so much debt that you don't feel like you can ever be a practice owner. Because investing in a practice is paying yourself because you'll earn more in the long run than you would as an associate and um, you'll have your practice to sell for retirement as well. So that's just another icing on the cake there. Yeah, and I, th I think practice ownership financially in the long term makes a lot of sense in the ways you just described that it, it in itself is an asset. You can really outperform the market itself with your own practice and being very ownership minded relatively early on in life will benefit people in the long run financially. Um, once they know that it's an area that they're going to settle down in and that that's what they want to do. It obviously does come with a lot of lifestyle compromises in terms of the responsibility of managing the business and the staff. And I think there's a constant stream of stress uh, and, and work associated with that. But if that's kind of their full-time job, I think it makes a lot of sense in the long run to invest in that financially. And I'm, I'm glad that's what your research also supported. Yeah, for sure. I And I think this is another McGill Hill Group newsletter. I can't remember exactly where I was reading it, but they go through these two scenarios of Sally and Sue and Sally takes an associateship and she's making X amount a year. And then Sue buys a practice for what seems like a very large sum of money, but then just within a few years, I mean, it ends up paying for itself and then she takes home a lot more in the long run, but then she also gets all of the different tax benefits. And I'm not even familiar with all of them, but for that, I would probably hire somebody or an advisor to help me with that. You have to have a great accountant, 
in your life and um, just take advantage of all of the perks of being a business owner because I mean, you deserve it because you are having all of that extra stress and having to hire staff. And I couldn't imagine being a business owner during this uh, COVID outbreak because I think my anxiety would just be through the roof. But financially, you are going to end up getting paid for it long term. Yeah, I mean, I know that just the the amount of work that Dr. Siebert has put in and kind of the amount of stress related to just managing a practice through COVID has been sizable, but at least from my impression of her view of life, I don't think she would have ever done it any other way. And people who, you know, have shouldered the burden associated with ownership, while we still say that that's what they would choose to do with their life because of the autonomy. And Laura, Dr. Siever is who you practice with, right, for our listeners? Yes, yes, correct. So I, I am also an associate at this point, um, and Dr. Siever um, had bought the practice where I work um, about 20 years ago. She also associated for a couple of years after residency and then um, bought out the practice um, and, has, and has managed it well ever since. So we have two associates awesome. and a resident. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> the new podcast name. There you go. <laughs> Although telling the truth has been getting good feedback. So I think, I think <laughs> yes, for now I, we'll stick with it. <laughs> I love it. Uh, just to transition a little bit. I loved reading about some of the apps um, that you talked about in your book, uh, particularly some of the ones that you can use to reduce your spending. Um, and I promise that n- none of these are sponsors uh, yet anyway, but we, can we talk about <laughs> some of those particular apps that you, that you mentioned? Yes, I grew up in with a mother who was the coupon queen. Literally, <laughs> when she would go shopping at the grocery store, Me the too. cashiers would run because on double coupon <laughs> day, she was your worst nightmare. So I've inherited this a little less so than my mom, but I have inherited this I guess, knack for finding different deals and ways to find deals. So in my book, I have a chapter called Reduce Spending, and it goes through a lot of the things in people's lives that you often spend money on, like groceries and rent and just shopping in general. But I do talk about a few different apps, and one of them is Honey. It is a internet extension, and you just download it on your computer. So whenever you go to check out basically any online store, you can just click the H, the honey button, and it'll show if there are any discounts available, like any promo codes or anything like that. So I think that's really cool. A few years ago, I ended up refurnishing my bedroom and I saved a lot of money using that. So I was really thankful for that. And we, as as, Wikibuy is another one, right? Wikibuy? Yes, Wikibuy is another one. It's crazy to me because it almost, it sounded too good to be true because they're free to use and they literally just give you coupons for things. I think the only downside I could think of is that they're, you know, they're able to see what you're buying and they can use that for their internal information, but it's free to use and it gives you good deals on things that you wouldn't have found otherwise. So, I mean, I think why, why not have them? <laughs> I think they're great to have. 
Exactly. That's, that's my thinking. I'm like, you can do research on my spending habits all day as long as I get a good sale. Exactly. Yeah. Um, some of the other apps are apps that people are more familiar with. And these are um, travel apps like Priceline, Expedia. There is a site called Hopper. It lets you know, you plug in what flight you're looking for, like what day you want to fly, where you want to go. And it alerts you when the price is lowered. So it's not necessarily a site that you book through. I don't think I've never booked through them, but I have used them to update me when something that I want gets cheaper. And another thing that I learned in business school in one of my management courses or service industry courses was that airlines do actually have certain days and they have an algorithm as to when their prices are cheaper. And I wish I could remember it, but there's a certain one for international flights and a certain one for uh, domestic flights. And it's like, don't quote me on the numbers, but 146 days before a certain flight is when you're going to get the cheapest on average ticket. And I'm sure you can look that up online. I have not done the research on that recently, so I don't know the exact time, but that's something that you can also look up as well as booking on Tuesdays and Wednesdays are usually less expensive. Good to know. And I know you had um, an app. Um, I think my favorite one that you mentioned that I, and I hadn't heard of most of these, but the favorite one that you mentioned was uh, Yumly for groceries. Oh, I thought yeah. this was so cool. I thought this was just so cool because I know I'm somebody who has just a bunch of stuff in my fridge and I'm, I have no idea. I, I just make the same thing every time. And I, I just end up not using a lot of this stuff and unfortunately I have to throw it out. But this app, like you enter your, the ingredients that you have, and then it just pulls up recipes for you that you can use with the stuff you already have. I think it's just so cool. I was blown away. <laughs> yeah. I love that app. So if it's a weekend and maybe we went away for a weekend and it's Sunday and we come back we're like, what are we going to make for dinner? And we're like, okay, well we have kale, a zucchini, and then like ground beef or whatever. And we're like, well, what can we even do with that? So we just plug it into Yumly and it spits out like a bunch of different recipes and there's a huge variety on there. So yeah, I definitely love using that, especially because you don't want to waste food, not only because it hurts the environment, but because it hurts your wallet, you're paying for that and then you're, you're not using it. So Yumly is an awesome app. Of course you have kale, Sabrina. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's my number one food. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and could you, for the listeners, read the full title of your book and your name so that they could look it up to buy it on Amazon or elsewhere? Definitely. So my book is The Millennial Money Mindset, Achieve Financial Freedom by Dr. Sabrina Saunders. You can search it on Amazon and download it from there. You do not need a Kindle to read it. You just have to download the free Kindle Reader app on your laptop, tablet, or cell phone, and then you can read it on there. And for those of you listening or watching on YouTube, I'll have links in the description, and you can go straight to Amazon from there and, and buy her book straight from that link. As a disclosure, for some reason, we figured out the Amazon app 
is not letting you buy it. So you'll have to actually do it from the website, either on your computer or on your cell phone. It just has to be the full website. I don't know why it's not allowing it through the Amazon app itself. How did you find a publisher? Well, I wrote the book over quarantine when I was furloughed and I was super motivated in the beginning and would work on it a lot. And then I went in waves of writing and editing. And I actually wasn't even sure if I was going to publish the book at all. I was kind of just writing it to give out to friends or people who were interested in it at first. But I ended up having my boyfriend read it and he said that it was great. And he's pretty familiar with a lot of personal finance strategies. And he said that he even learned a lot. So he really encouraged me to publish it. The next task was finding a publisher and me being out of work and being in so much debt, I really didn't want to pay a lot of money to get it published. So it wasn't something that I 100% had to do. But then I found Amazon and they have this platform called Kindle Direct Publishing. It allows you to publish your books in an ebook format to the Kindle store for free. So I paid no money to publish it. Basically, when you're done writing, you upload the Word document to their app and figure out the formatting from there. You can edit in their, it's called Kindle Create. So you can edit in Kindle Create. And then when you're done, you upload it onto Amazon. They have to approve it. And that takes, I mean, they say it can take up to three days, but mine was approved pretty quickly. It, it was less than 24 hours. So then it was up and ready for sale by the end of that week because that's when I wanted the release date to be. It's a super user-friendly platform. And if anybody is interested in writing a book, I encourage people to check it out. While I would have loved to create a paperback book, I didn't want to spend the money on it at this point. But if it does become a big hit, I might change my mind. Wow, that's really neat. I didn't know, I didn't know any of that for how for number one, that it would be free to publish. And then you have all those tools to, you know, edit and create the ebook in that format. So that's really cool for any aspiring authors out there. There you go. You have a project if you have some extra time on your hands. One of the things that uh, I found personally really interesting in your book was when you talk about one of the great financial debates for particularly for people like dental students and, and young dentists who have lots and lots of, of student debt. And that's, should I be saving for retirement or should I be paying down my debt? And I know some people like Dave Ramsey say, throw everything you have at your debt first. And other people say to max out your contributions for retirement first and then tackle the debt. Where do you stand on this debate? This is such a tough question, which is why I named it the ultimate dilemma. And in my opinion, I do think that you should be saving for retirement as soon as you start working because you have a longer time period for the money that is invested to compound interest and to grow. So yes, I definitely think you should be saving for retirement and maximizing your easy money. So if you are part of a company, which a lot of dentists are not, but some who are in associateships end up going into companies that offer 401k matches, 
if you can match the money that you contribute 100% or even 50% up to a certain amount of money, then you should absolutely be doing that. You would be throwing away money if you're not. And there are some other things that I definitely, at least with myself, am doing. So I have a high deductible health plan. So that allows me to do a health savings account in HSA. These are are health savings accounts that roll over every year and you can invest them. They are triple tax benefits. So you put for 2020, it is $3,550, so $3,550 in per year. You can invest it in basically whatever you want. It grows tax-free, it goes in tax-free, and then when you use it in retirement for qualified health expenses or medical care, it comes out tax-free. So those are two big things that I would definitely do um, if you have the opportunity to do that. But at the same time, you do have to pay off your debt. Unless you're doing something like a government program that if you contribute or pay the minimum amount for 120 months or 10 years, then they'll forgive your debt. That's different. But if you're not doing a program like that, I highly recommend, if you can, refinancing your loans. Because I know my loans were at cumulatively, because they're different year to year, but it was almost 6.8% is what my loans were at. And so when I refinanced, I got them down to about 4%. So that's a huge difference. That's huge. That's really great advice, I think, that really helped me because I know I was kind of more on the side of paying down as much debt as possible. But I think, like you say, there's definitely some prudence in putting at least that kind of minimum amount of money towards your retirement because it does compound over time. And in some situations, you would be throwing away money if you didn't put anything in. With interest rates being so low, our young professionals able to access those rates is now a good time to refinance. What kind of interest rates should people expect to be able to get? Yes, I, I refinanced my loans in February before mm-hmm. all of this happened. And so interest rates were decent for me. It depends on the monthly payment, how long you want to pay off your loans for, what type of rate that you'll get. It also depends on if you do a fixed versus variable rate. So a fixed rate is a rate that you agree to and it'll stay that rate forever. Variable rates vary with the interest rate that the government sets. So right now, interest rates are really low. So if you are considering refinancing and you are not furloughed from your job, because I know that government right now is doing zero interest and they're not making you pay, but now is a great time if you know in the future that you want to do refinancing, now's a good time to do it because you're probably not going to get better rates than what you would now. How you go about refinancing your loans, I encourage people to get quotes from multiple different loan companies. I ended up going with Ernest because they offered me the best rate and they have this really cool program where you get to set your monthly payment and or or set how long you want to pay it off for and you can adjust 
like three different variables to get the plan that you want. Whereas a lot of other companies, which are still great, like SoFi and Laurel Road, they usually offer it in certain year increments, like five years, 10 years, 15 years. So it depends on if you want to do an in-between year and get a better interest rate, but can't afford paying it off in only five. Um, I recommend using Earnest for that. Getting quotes from multiple different um, loan companies or refinancing companies will help you see which one has the best offer. And if you do it all within the same month period, it won't hurt your credit score as much because every inquiry to your credit score hurts. But if you're doing it all within a certain month, the credit bureaus understand like you're just trying to get the best rate so it doesn't hurt your credit the more quotes that you get within the same month that makes a lot of sense well i think that's all the time we have thank you again sabrina for taking the time to be with us today and for sharing this great information and again for everyone listening if you want even more great information be sure to check out sabrina's newest book the millennial money mindset achieve financial freedom now available on Amazon. Thank you so much, Ryan and Laura. It was great talking to you. A lot of great content and a lot of great points, um, both in the interview and in her book. I'm really looking forward to reading it all the way through later, later this evening. Um, I, I particularly liked her part about all the different apps that you can use to save money because that was something I had not been clued into um, and just giving a straightforward explanation of index funds and actively managed accounts as a, as a counterpart. What was your favorite part? First of all, it was really nice to catch up with her because I hadn't really gotten to talk with Sabrina since we graduated from dental school. But uh, as far as I think my favorite thing from the book and that we touched on in a discussion was this idea of simultaneously tackling your debt while also putting something towards retirement savings, because I think it really is so important to at least get the ball rolling somewhat early. And if you don't have any income, it doesn't make sense to do that. But if, if you do, I think as soon as you have somewhat of a stable job or some source of passive income to put some of that, at least I think she recommends 10%, maybe even up to 20%, but 10% of discretionary income towards those retirement savings early on, it'll more than, than double and triple and quadruple the investment if you can do it early on in your 20s, ideally, or at, at the very least in your early 30s, I think. So yeah, I think that was really helpful to kind of put that in perspective for me. Yeah, it's very, very on point and relevant to people in our age bracket who are both trying to pay down a lot of loans while while moving our career and our personal lives forward. Mm-hmm. And if you're not a younger listener, that's okay because it's never too late to um, implement these strategies. And I, although the book was written by a millennial for millennial, a lot of these tips, if not m- all of these tips can be applied no matter what age you are. Additionally, we have some more financial episodes planned in the future. And another one of my classmates, Dr. Hubble Smith, will be here to talk more about student loans and how to pay those and 
how to balance consolidation versus refinancing the different loan programs like the repay and pay and what all those things mean. So I think that'll be a really great topic to kind of expand on this uh, area of dentistry that frankly, a lot of curricula just don't have a strong inclusion of. So hopefully we can fill that void and help people out there who are overwhelmed with their, with their financial situation and to help them get on their feet and do the best they can with managing their money. Yeah, and, give, and getting well-informed advice is, is worth a huge amount, particularly when it comes to financial management. So we're here to not only talk about academic advances in the traditional sense of research projects, but also how research can inform how we manage our money and how we run our practices and make all that we do as good as it can be. Absolutely. And if you have any follow-up questions after this episode, feel free to leave them in a comment below this video. Send me an email at officialmentaldental at gmail.com, or you can reach out to me via my uh, mental dental social media platforms on Facebook and Instagram, and we will address those questions in the next episode. But that's it for this one, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Take care, be safe, and we'll see you all in the next episode. Bye.